Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket Never let it fade away Catch a falling star and put it Welcome in everybody pocket, to this week's episode of From Broadcast Depth, a retrospective podcast about the television series Lost. I'm Kevin, he's Ben. Ben, how are we doing? Doing great, just uh, enjoying the pros and cons of summer because uh, we can grill out, which is always fun, but then uh, my uh, face is peeling with sunburn, so... It's both good and bad, I guess. I think I have a week of thunderstorms coming up in my area, so there's your other pros and cons of summer. Right. Yeah. Well, May showers. No, wait, it's April showers. Yeah. Let's be past that. Everything feels a little late this year in terms of weather. So the weather's, yeah, the weather's been crazy. You know, it made me think about it, though, too. You never see any of the, the – you know they're out of sunscreen now on the Lost Island. Right. <laughs> no, no, nobody is ever peeling – Nobody ever comments about the fact that uh, I guarantee you they're also out of deodorant and they all smell really bad. Yeah, but, I uh, guess there's enough shelter where people you can kind of explain the the true. sunburn away. But yeah, the smell's got to be pretty bad. Yeah, because I guarantee you. I mean, even if the hatch came with a whole bunch of deodorant inside for uh, Desmond, that's that doesn't last very long with 40, 45 or six or whatever survivors. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> But but I think there's bigger matters at hand on the island that they're yes. that they're concerned with. So we can get into those with our two episodes this week. And I will cover the first one. It is maternity leave. It is the 15th episode of season two. It is between days 58 and 59 on the island, somewhere in that window. And I found this to be interesting about the writers. It was written by Don Lam- Lambertson Kelly and Matt Ragianti. It is the only episode that they write in season two. It is their first episode of Lost they've written together. And before writing this, they were both writing assistants on the show. So they kind of work their way up into being able to to co-author. Yeah, they gave them a crack at the big leagues, huh? Well, I got to tell you, I am super jealous. I mean, I guess I like these writers because I was super jealous of you, Kevin, because this is one of my absolute favorite episodes. It's a great one. It's, It's top five for me. Yeah, it's um, wow, that's great. Yeah. So, uh, no pressure or anything on recapping it. <laughs> well, at least I'm I will I will stay positive because there's a lot of positive things to say <laughs> about it, but and I think I'm going to break this up uh, a little bit because this is another untraditional flashback episode yes. where instead of getting a look at Claire the subject of the episode, her life prior to the island like we've seen already, we're actually going to start filling in the blanks on what happened to her when Ethan kidnapped her. What happened in that time period before she came back? to the survivors on the island once again. Super exciting. Yes. And so the previously on is the scene from the first finale where Rousseau recounts the story of the others taking her child, as well as see clips of Claire and Charlie when they were kidnapped by Ethan. Then Claire returning to the others and telling everybody she doesn't remember Ethan or what he did to her. Then we see from the last episode, the clip of Saeed finding Henry Gale trapped in the net in the woods and Locke and Jack having their disagreement uh, on whether Henry deserved the type of treatment that Saeed was putting him through. And that's kind of our core stuff that's going to play out in this episode here. So a very succinct look in the previous on of what to, what to expect. We will get to, to Locke and Jack at the end of this episode, I think, but I'm going to focus on Claire and her story, uh, first of all. When we, when we start the episode, Aaron is sick. He's got a rash. He's burning up. He's got a bit of a fever. And Claire consults Locke, who then 
goes to the jungle to the hatch to find Jack because Claire was about to go stomp off in the jungle the Millenite herself, but Locke doesn't want her to do that. Not only to protect her, but because at this point, it's still Locke, Jack, and Saeed are the only people know that Henry Gale is still in the hatch. So while Locke plays it off as selfless, there is something he needs to gain and not let her know that Henry is there. Right. So suddenly, Rousseau appears behind Claire and notices Aaron is sick. I, I kind of don't understand why Rousseau was there. Do you think she's just kind of lingering around the island? Because the last time she was there, last episode, she had captured Henry and wanted to show Saeed. But I don't think they gave right. a reason for why Rousseau was here right now. I put the exact same thing down, and I'm glad you pointed it out. Because, yeah, I, I wrote, where the F did Danielle just randomly show up from and why? Because, yeah, I, the only thing I can think of is that she maybe heard the baby crying or something. Like, she was in the area, and she's still kind of, like, obsessed with Claire's baby. Uh, I, I don't know, but I mean, it's never spelled out. So I'm just, I'm just spitballing. Or maybe she even just feels like there's this unresolved issue with Claire. Cause you know, of, of everything that went down at the finale, I don't know. Yeah, could be, but either way she appears. And of course, Claire is startled by this, tells her to get away. And Rousseau says something like, you don't remember, do you? Um, cause she's talking about the sickness that, that Aaron has. And suddenly we get flashes of Claire's memory where we see, uh, a close-up shot of this woman we've never seen before, who's roughly teenage age. We see like a medicine cabinet. We see this pregnant belly being injected with a syringe and some voices going on in the background. And we see the, the moment where Claire scratches Rousseau's forearm. And before we can get any information about what's going on here, Kate chases away Rousseau. Claire tells Kate that Rousseau said there was something wrong with Aaron. So Claire's now thinking that, that the others did something to Aaron and that's why he's sick. Mm -hmm. Did did we already learn that that Claire was the one that scratched Danielle or is this the first time we're finding that out? No, we learned it. We learned it. Okay. Yeah, I forget where like when, but I this this was not a revelation that Claire. Got said. it. So Jack ends up looking at Aaron and he thinks it's it's a typical virus that infants get called roseola, but Claire is not convinced about this, although Jack says, you know, he'll be fine. I'll go check back in a couple of hours. And the next morning, Claire has the idea to consult Libby to help her unlock some of these memories that she is missing. Cause she feels like if she unlocks these memories, she'll maybe figure out what's wrong with Aaron and Libby's on the beach. She's hanging out with Hurley. So that's still going on. Uh -oh. And I like that. Claire says, Hey, you're a shrink, right? And Libby's <laughs> like, well, I'm a, you know, a clinical psychologist, but I, yes, I suppose shrink works. Yeah. I also like that, that Claire kind of came to this or got this idea. Cause I think it sort of fits in with, with her, belief system you know that she kind of goes with non-traditional like methods of of thinking about i don't know i'm thinking stuff like astrology and if she's thinking somebody can get her to like meditate and and you know bring back memories and stuff it kind of goes in line with that mm -hmm. yeah and as kate and claire are sort of catching libby up on everything that went on and what what she's dealing with what libby will have to deal with with claire you, you Claire flat out says she thinks she has amnesia, but Libby says, I don't think you have amnesia. I think this is a pretty traumatic experience that your brain is blocking out. And Claire just pretty much asked her to unblock those memories to know exactly what they did while Aaron was still in utero. So Libby has Claire do some breathing exercises, some meditation, and we see similar flashes that we did before. And then we get our, our first memory slash flashback here with Claire in this doctor's office speaking to someone we can't see. And it turns out to, that the doctor is Ethan. And so this is the, the other's hangout where Ethan has taken her. 
and he's filling the syringe for medicine for the baby. The memory of her being injected causes some more memory flashes. Then you snap her back to the reality and Claire has this big freak out saying, it's Ethan who drugged me. I need to go find the place where I was drugged before because that's where the medicine for Aaron is. Yeah. And talk about a bomb being dropped, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is like watching, if you're watching the show for the first time, there is nothing until this moment that gives you any indication that the others are anything other than, you know, just jungle savages basically. And this is a whole new way of looking at them. <laughs> and, his, and his demeanor is totally different. He's very kind and quiet and patient yeah. with Claire. And he That's seems true. to know what he's doing, at least. Mm-hmm. Basically, what's going to happen now is that Kate and Claire are going to go into the jungle to try to find where where the other's lair is. And before they can go out, Kate has to go ask Sawyer for a gun. And he tells him that he doesn't get to ask why she needs the gun. And, of course, that that's not going to go over well with Sawyer. Not going to fly. And he even changes the subject, talking about how he's got some new glasses now and he can read again. And Kate finally fesses up and tells tells him that they're going to go get Rousseau so she can help them find where the others are and that Aaron's really sick. And Sawyer says, well, hey, I got medicine. She's like, no, I mean like quarantine sick. And you could see this change in Sawyer where he actually seems like he's kind of concerned with what's going on now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like that little little touch. Yeah. Like he, he, he starts to care and he, and he relents and, and gives her a gun and they go off and Claire ends up leaving Aaron with son. And although son thinks Claire is leaving him as a mistake and she says something along the lines of a mother should never leave her child. Claire asks son, well, have you ever been a mother? And yeah. son sort of backs off and says, no, I haven't, which plays very well into the next episode. That but is true. We'll get to that in two a second. Also just a nice little, Oh snap moment because it's kind of like, don't tell me what to be doing with my kid. I might be, you know, leaving the kid momentarily, but it's for the greater purpose of trying to cure whatever's going on with them. Definitely. And there's a line that Sun says where she says, are you sure you want to do this? Which triggers another memory of Ethan telling Claire, you need to be sure. And then this leads to another memory that Claire has back to the doctor's office with Ethan. And he gives Claire another shot of stomach to the medicine, but her behavior changes because of this and she's a lot more loopy now she's on her under some sort of like anesthetic or some laughing yeah. gas or some other she's something like that tripping balls basically <laughs> yeah and so he says that she's been such a good girl that it's time to give her a surprise and he takes her down this hallway and this hallway turns a corner and the corner is we have a dharma logo against the wall and then opposite of that side we see this other sort of cavernous door to something or other and Clara, it interests her a little bit as they pass, but Ethan just sort of drags her along and he shows her this room, which is a nursery for Aaron. It's got, you know, a changing station. It's got a crib. It's even got a full size bed, which I guess Aaron will grow into. But they got this whole room with all this stuff for him. And he asks where they got all of it. And Ethan sort of says like, oh, we don't need to explain that. It would just be overwhelming. And as she's looking at this nursery, Claire asks, what happened to Charlie? And Ethan tells her he's fine. When they got far enough away from the camp, Ethan let him go. <laughs> yeah, uh, not so much. <laughs> I guess that's one way of putting it. Uh, another thing just to point out real quick with that Dharma logo you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So this is something that starts you know, to become more frequent here where we're looking at different types of Dharma logos. We've already seen there's just kind of the generic Dharma logo. But then the one with the station that is is like sort of our station, so to speak, has a swan on it, 
And this one has uh, the Rod of Asclepius. I don't know if that's pronounced correctly, but, you know, the medical-looking symbol. Right. So it's very specific. It gives you an idea that this is a very specific station in right. terms and, of its purpose. And the one where the tailies were staying was the arrow. It had the arrow. That's right. Dharma logo. So this is the third different Dharma logo we've seen, aside from, like, the generic one that's on the, the packaged goods and things like that. Right. And there's Dharma logos all over all the, the medicine and stuff that Ethan is using in the, in the medicine cabinet. At some point, Claire notices there's a this baby carousel that plays music, and there's four oceanic airplanes on the baby carousel. And suddenly, Ethan gets called out into another room, and we see it's a clean-shaven Mr. Friendly who has called him out to the other room. And we have this conversation between Mr. F Friendly and, and Ethan where Ethan's getting admonished because Mr. Friendly says you needed to finish the list before bringing her in. And Ethan says he had no choice because they figured out he wasn't on the flight manifest, so he improvised and brought her in earlier than expected. Right. And Mr. Friendly asked Ethan what he, they should do when he asks what happens. So this unknown he yeah, is going to be displeased. And then Mr. Friendly notices that Claire's at least passively paying attention, and he shuts <laughs> the door. And that ends the conversation brings us back to the present. But that's a, that's a pretty heavy flashback yeah. we get here yeah i mean like i would have not probably not even recognized miss uh mr friendly if it was not for his voice i mean the dude just looks like a guy who might work at your local hardware store you know yeah he's, that's a good way of putting so it. radically different from his his jungle grubbies that's right um so in the present kate and claire are, are in the woods walking trying to find Rousseau and they, they, they have this conversation. Claire's just trying to get from Kate a better sense of Rousseau. And it comes out here that Rousseau killed her partners because they got sick. And Rousseau actually finishes the story for them when she catches up with them in the woods. And Claire wants Rousseau to bring her back to where she's where Claire scratched her and Rousseau agrees to do so. And when they get there, Claire gets mad that there's nothing there. And Rousseau asks Claire, well, where do we go next? And Claire's mad because she thinks that Rousseau grabbed her to try to bring her back to the others so Rousseau would know where the others' camp is and where she could get the medicine. And Rousseau isn't happy to hear this, and she isn't happy to think that's why she grabbed Claire. And she grabs Claire uh, here, like by the arm, and Kate ends up holding a gun to Rousseau. Mm. And in this, this crazy moment, Rousseau just steps closer to Kate, getting closer to the gun to her head, and just says, please, do it. And Kate instead puts the gun away and starts to go after Claire, who's kind of gone on her own down a little bit in the woods. But was it was it to her head or to her chest? I thought I felt like she like literally walked into the gun. Yeah, and she just showed no fear, of being like, "Go ahead, just just do it." Yeah, it's crazy. Please, she bet she begs her to do it. Yeah, it's it's pretty nuts. Yeah. A very interesting side of Rousseau here. Very fatalist of her. She wants to she wants to get released from this hell that she's lived, and. But she, I mean, I guess you you just sort of assume she doesn't have the, she she's not going to, she can't do it herself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no. And so, and so as she chases after her, as, as, as Kate chases after Claire, we see Claire stumble upon this tree stump, which triggers yet another memory where we see Claire is in Aaron's room and she's sewing this baby boot out of yarn. And Ethan brings her while still very loopy into the jungle where they sit on that tree stump that triggered her memory. And he has her drink something out of this Dharma canteen that Claire comments that is very sour. 
Any yeah. idea what he's giving her? I don't know specifically, but I imagine it is what's keeping her loopy. That's probably right. Yeah. Yeah. And that something, the baby starts kicking inside of her belly. And then Ethan confesses to Claire that he's really going to miss her and that she wishes that she didn't have to go. And Claire says, well, you know, I don't have to go. But Ethan says, you know, we've already been through this. There's only enough vaccine for either her or the baby. And that once the baby is born, she has to go back to her friends. And Claire says, well, what if I want to see Aaron? And Ethan says, nobody's going to take the baby from you. You have a choice. And I want you to be sure that you can trust your baby with us, with your family. He pretty much frames these others as a family that can take care of it. Right. And she, and he kind of puts his hand on her knee and then she, without really saying anything, puts her hand on top of his to show like that. She completely trusts him and his choices that she's making for Aaron. So I want to draw a couple parallels here because I think this is interesting. What we're hearing from Ethan going back to Goodwin and the other 48 days, First of all, you've got this list situation. So we know that there was a list. Uh, Ana Lucia found a list in the pocket of one of the others. So lists uh, are becoming like a motif, names of people, of specific people that they wanted to capture, I guess, with the tail section people. And then apparently Ethan was supposed to do a similar list. You know, so they've got these ringers in both camps or, or had these ringers in both camps. So I thought that was interesting. And then also with this talk of, wasn't there a, I'm trying to remember the details of the conversation between Goodwin and Anna Lucia. He was sort of defending what the others had been doing by taking the children. They said kind of, they say like they're, they're in a better place or something like that. Yes. Yeah. So you've got the same thing of like Ethan saying, oh yeah, you know, we're this family and we're going to take care of Aaron and this is really good for him. So you're even just starting at this point to get this idea of sort of common threads. And then you even add to that, that Walt was taken. You almost get the sense that this is a group that while obviously have these intentions, you almost feel like they've all drinking whatever Kool-Aid it is that has them believing whatever it is they believe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Cult, cult vibes. Yeah, very much so. So now we go back to the present day and it begins to rain. Never a good sign <laughs> as Claire begins to further investigate in the woods. And she finds this Dharma hatch door buried under a tarp and branches. And it ends up leading us into that hallway we saw earlier. It's back to this infirmary. Uh, the Dharma infirmary is basically what it is. And her Kate and Russo all head inside. And while it's the same, it looks like it's totally ransacked mm -hmm. lights are hanging off the wall. It's very dark and dreary. And, and just, it looks like something has really happened to this place, yeah. but we don't know it's what gutted. Kate ends up finding some flashlights in like this Dharma utility box on the wall gives one to each of them. They find the bedroom that Aaron was supposed to be in, but it's emptied and it's dirty. Kate finds this locker room and in one of the locker rooms, she finds this box and inside of it are a fake beard and some theatrical glue. So you get the idea that this is the fake beard that Mr. Friendly has been using. Uh, right. Weirdly, though, I found it kind of odd that the theatrical glue was a Dharma issued theatrical glue. <laughs> right. <laughs> because it makes you think, okay, so maybe the whole time there was supposed to be something, this, this subterfuge that the Dharma folks were supposed to be going right. through. Well, one of the theories, you know, that, that is popular at this point in the show is that these, these others are like remnants of the Dharma initiative. You know, it's like they're inhabiting their stations. They're using their old stuff. 
you know, you're talking about a, a group that was around on the island in the 70s. We don't really know much about them other than that they were scientific research. But I mean, I get what you're saying, too, about the theatrical glue. Like, it's funny that there's like Dharma brand right. theatrical so, glue. <laughs> why, why would Dharma, Why would the Dharma people need this? All the Dharma skits that they used to do. Right. But why would they need to hide who they really are? Good question. And then also don't forget too, that like in the locker, they, he, she saw like literally like head to toe costumes of like the kind of things that we've seen the others wearing up to this point, you know, like just the, the raggedy type clothes that look like they've been living in the jungle for months or years. Right. So there's something's going on with these people. Mm -hmm. In Aaron's room, Claire picks up the knitted booty that we saw earlier from another memory. And that triggers another memory where Claire is woken up by this dark-haired teenager who we had seen in all these different, like, erratic flashes of memories over and over again. And she tells Claire she has to get out of there. And she has her up, and they look out the door, and they see at the other side of the hallway that there's this room where they're prepping a table. Like, it's a whole bunch of people that are all scrubbed up. They're ready to perform. And she tells Claire they're cutting Aaron out of her tonight. And Claire doesn't believe her. She says, you're lying. And she wants to talk to Ethan. And she's, yeah, she's obviously still totally drugged. Right. She Yeah, she's drugged to the gills. And just she's also drinking the Kool-Aid, it seems like. And, right. and, this, and this teenager has to ether Claire and knock her out to get her to stop from making all this noise. And so this memory, however, lets Claire know exactly where to find the medicine chest, which when they get to the room, it's totally turned over. So her and Kate lifted up to find the entire cabinet has been emptied. So Claire asks Russo, where's the vaccine? And Claire remembers the scratch mark incident and sees that the scratch marks are still in Russo's arm. So what I got from this was that if Russo had access to vaccine or medicine like this, she would have used something to treat the scratch marks on her arms and there wouldn't have been this scar that's still there. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Because if she had all that, the vaccinations and everything else, she could have treated it properly and it would have been healed properly. Yeah, or if she, even if she just had access to like any medical supplies i mean you know this the the for for as long as danielle has been on the island these different hatches appear to be sort of like revelations to her she has not seen any of this before nope and the last memory we get is of claire waking up in the jungle all alone so the teenager after ethering her and knocking her out dragged her out to the jungle then left her there and she wakes up in and she calls out for ethan and she's telling him i'm sure i'm sure and we hear the others led by Ethan off in the distance coming after Claire and they have torches in their hand. And Rousseau ends up finding Claire and she's trying to tell Claire to keep quiet, covering her hand on her mouth. But Claire just keeps screaming for Ethan and the others. To, I'm here. I'm here. Come get me. And that's when she scratches Rousseau's form in the process. And Rousseau ends up knocking Claire out with the butt of her gun. And that's when Claire realizes Rousseau wasn't trying to take her back to the others. She saved her from them. Can I just say that for some reason, the sound effect they use of Claire scratching Danielle's arm is like nails on a chalkboard for me. Oh, it's terrible. Maybe, I can't watch maybe it's it. because I, I, you know, it gives me that mental impression of what it feels like to be happening. Yeah, it's but, very. Oh God. <laughs> it's almost too effective. Like I can't watch it. Like after oh. the once, I'm like, I got to turn away. Yeah. So Claire realizes that it's Rousseau actually saved her from the other. She wasn't trying to bring her back to them, and she apologizes to Rousseau. And Rousseau turns and starts leaving and Claire asks where she's going. And Rousseau tells Claire she isn't the only one who didn't find what they were looking for. And as they're all walking back, Claire figures out what I think we all sort of figured out. 
was that the teenager who saved her and put her in the jungle was Alexandra, Rousseau's daughter that was taken from her by the others oh so many years ago. And yeah, and, 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 and when you talk about figuring that out, how about the casting on this? Spot on. Spot on. Like, you see that teenage girl for a fraction of a second in that flash. And I think if you're one of those people who's paying, you know, who's kind of keeping real up to date with like, oh, these are the mysteries that have to be solved. That's like the first thing that's got to pop in your head because it's like a mini Danielle. Yeah, it definitely popped in my head as soon as I saw it. I'm like, that's got to be her. Like right. the, age, the age matches up. She looks just like her. Right. Incredible casting. Awesome casting. So, yeah. So she puts together that this is Rousseau's daughter and she gives Rousseau some assurance saying that this person wasn't like everybody else. She was good. And Rousseau apologizes to Claire for not finding what she was looking for, but also hopes that Claire knows what must be done if Aaron does not get better. Yikes. A, a pretty hard uh, <laughs> thing to leave her with. Right. Understandable, but also a tough thing for a mother to swallow, especially right. one who's gone through as much as Claire has gone through. Well, you've got this thing, too, where I think as an audience, you're still – or maybe at this point you're debating this idea of – did Rousseau kill her team justifiably because there really was something wrong with them? Or is she just still batshit crazy? And so, you know, and so basically she's applying the same logic to Claire and, and Aaron that she's like applied to her own crew of like, they need to die because of this infection. Yeah. Which, you know, that could just be some hysteria from Rousseau from earlier on yeah, or something to it, but who are, who are, who's to know? Well, it's a question, you know, is it crazy or is she actually onto something? Yeah. Well, we don't get to figure it out because thankfully for Claire, Aaron's fever breaks and he's okay. And Jack has a checkup with him and assures her everything's going to be fine. And we see this, this great shot of Aaron being rocked in, in the, in the, in the carriage and Claire's looking down on him and through, she's very tearful. She confesses to Aaron that, she wanted to give him away to the others, but now she knows that they're meant to be with each other and to take care of each other and that she loves him so much. And it's it's a really beautiful moment. And that sort of ends the Claire story of this episode, a very strong and a very clever way to give us some more information about the others and what went on. Yeah, I mean, a, a great surprise for a Claire episode, too, because Claire is a character that you don't typically associate with. We're going to reveal a lot of island mysteries and, you know, because that's usually a character like Locke uh, or Mr. Echo, maybe. So to, to put her front and center in this uh, extremely mythology filled episode was just a really great unexpected move on the part of the writers. It's one of the reasons why I love this episode so much. And that's not all that happened in this episode, Ben. Oh, no. No, no. Oh, Jack and Locke. <laughs> we saw some dissension in between them once once Henry came into the hatch, and it's just going to get a little bit worse here. And it starts with Locke bringing Henry a meal and a book. They're, they're keeping him locked up in the in the gun room. And he brings him a book, The, the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, or however you want to pronounce that. We'll talk about that book in the book section. Yeah. But Locke tells Jack a story when they're on their own again about how Hemingway was jealous of Dostoevsky because Hemingway wanted to be the greatest writer in the world, but felt he could never get out from under Dostoevsky's shadow. I'm sure that quote was just, you know, thrown out there for no good reason. <laughs> so then Locke asked Jack, what is the long term plan for Henry? As many people may start to get suspicious that the two of them keep monopolizing all the shifts in the hatch. 
And Jack says, well, you know what? We don't really have a long-term plan for that button in there, but until they figure either of those things out, they're just going to keep doing what they're doing. <laughs> and Henry, well, what's great is he, he says from uh, the, the room when they ask, what are we going to do with him? He just says something like, how about you let me out of here? <laughs> um, which shows you how thin the walls are also in the hatch. Sort of unrelated, but kind of related. We see Mr. Echo chopping down this relatively skinny tree branch. And then the next thing we see is him in the hatch. And Jack notices him coming as he kind of calls out for somebody there. And he hides Henry while Locke pretends that he's the only buddy in the hatch at the time. But Echo's sort of suspicious there's something going on, especially when he looks into a room and he sees that there's this made bed. Because they're in the bathroom are Locke and Henry. They're not staying in the room where Henry's staying at. Right. Well, and the, and the room he's looking into is the armory. So it's right. like, what, what, what is that doing in there? Yeah. So Echo asks Locke for a saw, and Locke says, of course, and leads him to the room where a saw could be found. But Mr. Echo certainly thinks something's going on. And he approaches Jack on the beach, and he asks, who is the man they're keeping in the hatch? And luckily for Jack, doesn't try to hide this or be like, what are you talking about? He just like, all right, yeah, there's somebody in there. And Mr. Echo agrees to keep it a secret if Jack will let him speak to the man alone. A very interesting proposition for Mr. Echo. Jack and Locke do let Mr. Echo into Henry's room. And Mr. Echo tells Henry that on the first night he was on the island, he was dragged away by two men only to kill them with his bare hands. And he wants Henry to know how sorry he is. And then he asks for Henry's forgiveness. And Mr. Echo pulls out his big knife and you think something bad's about to happen. Yeah, but, the but, music cue comes up like, <laughs> yeah. But Mr. Echo has like these two small tufts of hair growing under his chin that he cuts off and he gives to gives to Henry. And I guess that's supposed to be very symbolic in, in some way to Mr. Echo. It's something where you kind of I mean, I personally did not really specifically notice it until now. But if he, he killed two people, it feels like that's symbolic of the two people that he killed and that he was going to keep those on his beard until he got some kind of absolution. Right. And I guess this confession, Henry gives him what he needs. Right. And so you can cut those two pieces free. I think echo, like even though the question is not answered of is Henry Gale telling the truth or is he in fact, one of the others echo goes in there. And I don't think he's necessarily assuming that this guy is an other. I think he's just saying like, this is the person that I'm sort of being, guided to tell about this like somehow this 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 is what he needs to do to achieve that absolution right that's that is what mr echo has manifested in his own mind yeah it needs to be done so Locke's now alone and he presents henry this bowl of fruit for dinner in the in the armory having to give henry the bad news there's no cheeseburgers there <laughs> and henry asks Locke if what he said about hemingway earlier was true he asks if Locke, if Locke's the genius or the guy who feels like the one who is living underneath the shadow of the genius. And Henry makes some remark about how he doesn't understand why he lets the doctor call all of Locke's shots for him. Locke tries to set him straight that they make decisions together. And Henry's like, oh, okay, my mistake. But you can tell by his countenance, Locke's very much bugged by this. It's the mental seed has been planted there. And after he leaves Henry in the armory, Lock out of frustration, knocks a bunch of kitchenware on the floor, and you see Henry go on his, sitting on his bed. He he sits more upright, like his head moves upward as he hears this crashing, seemingly pleased with what he has done. So this is our first indication that this Henry fellow, there's a there's something to him. 
may, yeah, may not just he, be this guy who came in a hot air balloon who owned this mineral factory. He plays Locke like a fiddle. Which is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> and that that's our episode. And as I recap it and I think about it, I yeah, I can see why this would be in your top five. No doubt about it. There's something to me about, yeah, the novelty of taking a character that's not traditionally associated with the Big Island Mysteries and making her the focus. It's also an extreme departure from anything that they've given to Claire, you know, in terms of material up to this point. So I just, this felt so unique to me when I first watched it. I also love, you know, the format of keeping it all on the island and filling in some mysteries from the first season so it's just you have that and then you have the whole you know the interplay between jack and Locke and henry gale which, and some good echo moments as well we talk about some things like did we really need another charlie flashback about this or do we really need another flashback about this character but they they and i don't necessarily know that we needed one with claire here but we got something even better right yeah i mean this this is like uh this is a totally different thing because we're not getting just another period of claire's life we're getting like in, in, intense island mythology out of this and so since this is one of your favorite episodes i'm curious to know ben what was your favorite scene of the episode this was tough and ironically although i i, I love all the stuff with claire my if i had to pick a favorite scene at there's a difficult tie or not tie but i guess a runner-up but kate discovering the others costumes is such a game changer to me for like what the hell is going on <laughs> that I feel like the, the impact of that is like super, super heavy and really changes the course of how you're thinking about who these people are, you know? But then my follow-up would be maybe the echo scene with Henry uh, just cause it's so intense and, and for that character really important. For sure. Yeah, those are two great picks. Mine is sort of similar for the reason that you chose the one with Kate finding the costumes, and that was Mr. Friendly pulling Ethan aside for a chat mm -hmm. because it confirms that they are indeed a part of the same group, first mm -hmm. and foremost. But you also get the line about what is he going to think? So there's yeah. somebody who's calling the shots. It isn't just this this collective that's similar to the Survivors where you may have your your players like your – Jack and Kate's and Saeed's and Locks, who are obviously sort of the brain trust of the survivors that people have entrusted. There's a clear he and a clear one above all amongst these these others on the island. And I right. think that was a pretty big reveal too. And like you said too, like I think that makes it sound a little bit cult-like too. This unknown capital he makes me think of like Homer Simpson and Leader. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's. I wonder who's the one who can eat a, a month's worth of gruel and not be slowed down. Of the <laughs> one other quick thing too, since we're on scenes, not not that it's a favorite scene, but I, I just didn't get a chance to mention it earlier. But I, there's a really great shot when Claire sees the landmark uh, tree log that's fallen over, where then she remembers having that conversation with uh, Ethan. And I love how with that particular flashback at the end of it it pans around Ethan and Claire. And then you see Claire watching her own flashback in the background. I just thought that was such a kick-ass thing. And you really haven't seen anything like that with any of the flashbacks yet in Lost. You, you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah. When she's watching herself. Yeah. What and Ethan on the tree stump from a distance. Yeah. Like I love that shot. Swing. I thought that was great. Very. Yeah. That's a very, and awesome. it, it also sort of underscores how like the, the flashbacks in this episode, not only are they different in the sense that they all take place on the Island, but that 
there are things that are actually triggering them. It's not just the story switching back and forth from past to present. Like there are things that are triggering these memories in Claire as the episode progresses. Right. And that's why I thought it was important to, to recap the episode the way I did. Yeah, you did it perfect. Lee. So what was your quote of the episode? Mm. You already hit my quote, which is uh, when Jack says we have to keep doing what we're doing. And if you've got a better idea, let's hear it. And you hear it in the background, why don't you let me go? <laughs> That's a pretty good one. I really liked Rousseau just saying you're not the only one who didn't find what they were looking for because mm-hmm. I think that's kind of sums up Lost in a nutshell. Everyone's kind of trying to find what they're looking for. It gives some more humanity to Danielle as well. I mean, this whole idea of – I mean, you know that she lost her daughter, but this idea that after 16 years she's still hoping out, holding out hope that she will find and reestablish a relationship. Right, and I think it's kind of cool that just like – I don't know that you'd ever expect this particular triumvirate to ever go off in the jungle together. Yeah, totally not. So that's pretty fun. Yep. What about your asshole idiot? My asshole idiot is Locke because he just gets so easily played by Henry Gale. You know, you said that it's not an easy thing to to do that to Locke. And I would agree. And I would say that it's kind of – I would say that it's out of character, but I don't think it is in the context of like – at this point, I feel like the hatch and being in the hatch is starting to get to lock. Because if you dial all the way back to, I think it was like episode three or four, probably episode three, when he the computer's broken and he's like shouting at the universe, like, what am I supposed to do? I feel like he's hit this brick wall at this point where he, in the first season, his he had all this destiny and uh, you know, I've got this thing I've got to do and it was opening the hatch. Well, he opened the hatch and it's kind of like the dog that catches up to the car. What do you, you know, you don't know what you're going to do to quote the Joker. You don't know what you do once you catch up with it. You're in the hatch. Well, what are you supposed to do now? And I think that frustration is getting to him. He's, he's becoming more aimless in his purpose and that it makes him really easily manipulated by Henry Gale. I, that that's a pretty fair assessment, I think, yeah. of what's going on with Locke there, especially because when you have Henry locked up there, you really got to be on your guard, mm-hmm. especially with the information that Rousseau gave Saeed with this man is going to lie and lie and lie. You need right. to be careful for this. And I think Locke letting his guard down or letting him sort of dictate his feelings is a very dangerous thing to to let happen. Yeah, it's like any kind of situation like that where you don't let the you don't let the prisoner try to talk their way out of a situation and he's planting all these seeds right now. So the only numbers I found was that there was four of the oceanic airplanes in the mobile, but that's just sort of the structure of mobile. So I don't even know if that mm-hmm. really counts. But of course, if you look at the vials that Ethan's using, the numbers are just in sequence across one of them broken up there. Okay. But otherwise that's the only number I found. What, did you get any Sawyer nicknames? There was only one. And it was uh, when he called Kate Thelma right. when she asked for a gun, of course, an, oh, um, an homage to Thelma and Louise. Thelma and Louise. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there was two books in here and I'll let you take a, I think you're gonna become our books and music guy. So why don't you let me know about the books and or music got, yeah, two books. And then there's actually, you know, there's a lot of actual conversation about literature in this, which is, uh, a little more than just sort of the seeing somebody hold a book, you know, which is something that happens more often, but the brothers Karamazov don't know if that's the right pronunciation. That's what I'm going with. It's a Russian novel. It deals with a lot of the same debates and topics that Lost deals with. Free will, morality, things like that. 
According to just a quick quote from Wikipedia, says it's a spiritual drama of moral struggles concerning faith, doubt, judgment, and reason set against a modernizing Russia with a plot which revolves around the subject of patricide. We have experienced patricide on Lost. So basically, the book kind of argues in favor of free will, but it depicts it as a curse rather than a blessing because of the burden that it places on people to decide their own beliefs. Of course, we've got a lot of people on the island that are trying to figure out what they believe right now, like Locke, maybe Mr. Echo to some extent. So, And it also has daddy issues. There's a distant father character who is actually competing with one of his sons for the affection of a woman. Then there's somebody, one of the characters is accused of killing his father and is convicted even though he's innocent. And he is awaiting exile to Siberia, but he ultimately escapes prison and flees to America. So I, I mentioned that because you've got the exile thing going on. And in Lost, we've had a few characters talk now about how they feel like they have been exiled. It, not Maybe not in the same words, but that they are stuck on this island because of crimes or things that they have done. I love these ones where there's themes that are kind of overlapping with Lost because it reinforces that the the book choices are are often very deliberate. And then, you know, they even talk about it in the show. Our second book is Lancelot by Walker Percy. Uh, had no idea I, until I did a little research on this about this one. Um, and sounds kind of scary. It's Basically, there's a lawyer named Lancelot. So, I mean, I read, I heard Lancelot and immediately assumed it was about the, you know, the Arthur Knight. <laughs> but as a lawyer named Lancelot, he goes into a mental institution after murdering his wife for being unfaithful to him. And then he spends the book defining his own quote unquote new order, which is basically a diatribe condemning the evils of the modern world and what he would do to fix them. So this sounds like kind of a very neocon type guy, like, uh, you know, he's got this sort of rigid sense of morality and women should be doing this and that sort of thing. So um, mental institution, you say? Yes. Hmm. Oh, hmm. yeah. We've got a mental institution in Lost. Good call. <laughs> so there's like and then it, as it goes along, it does draw like analogies between this Lancelot's quest to create this new order and the Arthurian Lancelot's quest for the Holy Grail. The description reminded me a little bit about uh, of uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Did you ever, to, ever have to read that in high school or college? You know, I don't think I did. Yeah, it's it's kind of the same thing of like you're sort of inside of the head of somebody who you know has pretty significant mental problems, and a lot of the book talks about like his ethical worldview and explaining it to the reader. That I will say that character is a lot more sympathetic than what this character sounds like. I have not read Lancelot, but based on the the reading that I did online about it, this does not sound like a very sympathetic character. So, um, but yeah, so that's your second book there. You want me to go into music? Go for it. Okay. The baby uh, carriage and the mobile, uh, they're actually, the, um, those are throwbacks to the episode where Claire had the dream about that. Um, uh, and in both of them, it has those oceanic planes, I think. But the uh, the song that's being played is Catch a Falling Star. Um, there have been a lot of different versions of that, uh, but Perry Como is the one that uh, has is the singer who did the most famous version. Didn't he just do Papa Loves Mambo? He did. That was yeah. two episodes ago. I believe. Two. So just a couple episodes ago, two Perry Como uh, songs. Um, 
So that's there for your uh, collection of incidental music uh, on Lost. And then we do have one track from the uh, soundtrack, season two soundtrack. Uh, it's called Claire's Escape, and it is a suspense track. Basically starts with uh, Claire being inside the uh, medical station, the flashback of her escaping with Alex and sort of her having these revelations of remember of these memories. Uh, so it sort of starts really kind of slow and mysterious and builds uh, as the action builds in that uh, sequence. Um, so good suspense track for the season two soundtrack. That's what I've got. Yeah. Uh, and I guess that takes us into our next episode. Yes. The Whole Truth, written by Elizabeth Sarnoff and Christina M. Kim. Yes. The Whole Truth. Days 60 to 61 on the island. And for our recap, we have the scene where Danielle takes Saeed to Henry Gale, tells him he is, quote, one of them. And then we also see a recap scene real quick of Charlie... It doesn't actually show him in the recap, but uh, attacking Sun in her garden. So this is a uh, Sun flashback, and I will go ahead and go with our more traditional method here of doing the flashback first and then getting to the island action, if that works for you. It does, and before we leave the previously on, the recap. nobody but Sawyer knows that Charlie is the one who kidnapped her still. Correct. Okay. Yes, that is a deeply buried secret at this point that... Uh, Darth Hoodie was the attacker. So for our flashback, Sun and Jin, I guess they're in their apartment or house sort of midway through their marriage or more towards the end before the flight, getting ready for some snoo snoo maybe. So, you know, he's kind of sitting there in bed waiting for her to come in. She comes in in this uh, sexy outfit, but uh, things kind of get less romantic pretty quickly because we find out that they have been trying for a baby for a year and have not had any success. So that's kind of uh, a little bit of a mood ruiner for them. And uh, Jin suggests that they go to a fertility doctor, but Sun actually brings it back to not even knowing for sure if she wants to have a baby because of Jin's quote unquote work for her father. So this places this scene after the scene where he comes home and has blood all over his clothes that we've seen previously, which was, of course, we know from his perspective, was when he actually sort of saved that guy's life by beating the hell out of him. Yeah. So this, he, starts, this starts as your reminder that Yoon Joon Kim is a babe. <laughs> yeah, covered up on the island, <laughs> and then just kind of goes into the sad place. But she makes a good point. Yeah. It seems, it's, it's a very tumultuous time in their lives and if if Jin's never going to be home to take care of the kid and he's in such a dangerous line of work why put a kid into the situation right well and, and then Jin's position is that he feels like having a baby will change everything for them that it'll I guess bring them closer together so that's sort of where he's coming from with and, this. and he says maybe your dad will give me a safer spot in the company because yes. he doesn't want to jeopardize his grandchild's yeah well-being. yeah which I think he might be giving Pike a little bit too much credit there but uh, yeah. it's possible <laughs> so that's our first flashback scene next uh flashback we see sun in a hotel and she's kind of sneaking around she's looking around to see if anybody's seeing her she uses a key card to go into a room where we find that she is meeting with jay lee so this is the bald gentleman who we saw previously as the hotel owner's son uh who was sort of on this matchmaking situation with son, but then end up ended up saying that he was going to America for this woman that he met when he was in college. 
the way that the scene is framed and set up, it sort of plays with this idea that they're having an affair. Uh, I think that's like the first logical assumption that anybody would leap to here. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but, uh, you know, especially given son's home situation, but it turns out that he is just teaching her English. They kind of talk about a quote unquote arrangement. And I don't remember if it gave any more detail on that, but did, what was your interpretation of that? Well, so at first he's like, have you told Jin? And she's like, no. And he's like, I thought you were going to say something to him. And again, that leads to like, are you going to leave him for me? But yeah. I think he's just not telling Jin that she is learning how to speak English and right. he can't understand why. So I think what I'm getting here is that she wants to learn English from him, but don't, don't ask questions. And he's still asking his questions, especially now that they're kind of getting the, to the, to the end of these lessons. Yeah. At some point he talks about, you know, keeping secrets and, and there's a line where he refers to the idea. So I guess I think what, what we're to understand is that between the last time that we saw him and now, which is at least a couple years, cause she was, she met him before she even met Jin. So this is at least a few years later, right? Yeah. That's my impression. Yeah. And so like the, within that time period, he went back to America to meet with that girl and then it sort of fell through. Do you remember that he mentioned something about that? I do. Yeah. And now he's yeah. here working in the, his father's hotel industry and that's how he's able to get their, their room to right. hide away where it could have, he could be using these hotel rooms for a nice marital tryst, but nope, just <laughs> this woman English. Nope. Just learning English. So then our next scene, Sun and Jin are at a fertility doctor. So that so they went ahead and did that. Uh, also happens that the fertility doctor knows Sun's father. And he says, he expresses his, uh, like, to send him my best wishes or something like that. Basically kind of kissing his ass. He tells them that Sun has this scar tissue blocking her fallopian tubes. And that even with surgery, she would not be able to conceive. So this comes as a blow to both of them, but Jin in, you know, one of these Jin moments that we see before the island where he kind of acts like an ass, he accuses, first accuses son of knowing that she couldn't conceive before they got married. And she gets off a nice one liner saying something like, oh yeah, sure. I lied to you because I really wanted to land, you know, a fisherman's son. <laughs> So they're, you know, they're kind of exchanging these quips that uh, are indicating they're not real happy with each other. He, he flips out and shoves a bunch of papers on the ground. Uh, it's not a good situation. We go back to Sun being with Jay Lee. He says, oh, you were distracted during our lesson. And they're speaking all English at this point. So it's not being even translated. And he says that she's been fluent for quite some time. Sun tells him uh, about the situation, says that she's infertile and that she's glad. Basically, I think, I think the idea being that she doesn't, at this point, the way things are with her and Jin, she does not want to have Jin's baby. Was that what you were thinking? Yeah. And he even says, you know, you're obviously not coming here to learn English. You've been fluent for some time. So why are you here? And I think right. he gets the attention, the emotional support. It's almost mm -hmm. like, it's almost like an emotional affair with him. Mm -hmm. um, even though there's nothing sexual going on. Yeah. I mean, about the, the thing with, with Jin is that, and, and I know this is done because he's ultimately, they want him to be a sympathetic character is the only thing he really stops short of doing is actually physically hitting her. But there is, you know, there's verbal abuse. There's this violent acting out with like throwing stuff around and, and everything. But I think you know, if there was physical abuse, he probably could not have come back from that in the audience's mind. 
he'd become like, you know, a Hank Pym, but it stops just short of that with them. The way, I guess what I'm saying is the way they're speaking to each other is like, obviously a couple who are, whose relationship is about to end at yeah. that point. So, In jeopardy, if nothing else. Right, right. So, but uh, Sun explains to Jay Lee that she's learning, or no, he, sorry, he figures it out. He, he figures out that she's learning to speak English in secret because she's going to leave Jin. He wants her to stay, not for Jin, and then it, the scene cuts out. So you're left to wonder, you know, is he about to say, I want you to stay for me? That's kind of the logical assumption, but we don't actually hear him say it. Then our next scene, our last flashback scene, Sun is walking with uh, what I have coined as the wrinkly bribe dog, Popo, and the fertility doctor from the previous scene randomly pulls up next to her in his car. He gets out and he tells her that it's not Sun who is infertile, but Jin, and that he made up all the stuff about Jin's fallopian tubes and all this stuff about the scar tissue and everything basically because he was because he knows that Jin works for Pike and he did not want to upset that situation like he's saying that he'd be like his I forget if he says like he'd be killed or if he's just his his life would be ruined or something if if Pike were to basically he doesn't want any bad news coming from him that Pike would find out about is that that about sum that up yes son's father could do more abuse to Jin as Jin is employed under him Got and it. he would never hurt his own daughter. I see. That's, that's okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I think I mixed that up a little bit, but that what you're saying sounds right. Okay. But he says that, you know, son deserves to know the truth. And of course the title of the episode is the whole truth. So the truth is important in a couple of ways in this episode. So, so that is our flashback. Anything you wanted to add to the flashback? I just think it's weird. There's whole thing about truth when everyone on the island is just so upfront with each other and honest. And <laughs> man, I don't know. I just it, yeah. it just doesn't seem to fit the other motifs we've seen in previous episodes. I mean, there's there's like there's lies. There's lies by omission. I feel like there's more. Even yes, there are lies, but even more so are just the things that people don't tell each other right. that they probably should. So speaking of which, we have some situations on the island here. Really? What? <sighs> we start with Sun in her garden. Jin shows up. And um, so Jin at this point in the season, uh, I don't know about you, Kevin, but I feel like he has this creepy little thin mustache that I don't really love. Did you notice that? I didn't. I'm glad I didn't. Uh, I mean, like, it's a weird facial hair. Like, uh, And he's also got, like, a tiny little beard, but it's not even a beard that like covers his whole face. So it's not like, you know, Jack and a couple of the other characters that have sort of a perpetual five o'clock shadow because they're living on an Island. It almost seems like this is a fashion choice, which is just, yeah, I don't know. It looks weird. It makes him look completely different. I don't like it, but it, he's kind of acting like an ass in this scene. So maybe it's fitting because he demands that son come back to the beach camp because the garden is where the quote unquote others attacked her from his perspective, you know, and so I get that part of it. He doesn't want her to be out there alone because of that. That makes sense. But uh, what is not okay is he physically grabs her and tries to drag her away. And then when she resists, he basically destroys her garden by ripping up the uh, plants and says, well, now you've got no reason to be here. So, you know, let's come back, you know, come back to the camp now. I felt this f fell a little bit into the category for me of that sort of character regression that I've talked about some, like with Charlie, 
How, how did you feel about that? Um, I felt better about it once the episode ended. Yes. Okay. I mean, true. Like it gets resolved by the end of the episode, but. And what I was thinking was, didn't you just, you and son just have this conversation, how you don't like to be told what to do. Yes. And now I, you're telling her what to do. That's exactly <laughs> what I was about to say is that that is like not more than a couple episodes ago, they had that conversation. So yeah, that's a little frustrating character regression uh, to me, but it made its point and it does get resolved later. Yeah. Meanwhile, Anna Lucia is getting in a morning run and Locke is waiting for her back at her shelter. So she kind of surmises like, you've been kind of hanging around here a lot. What's What do you want with me? He tells her about Henry Gale. He's sharing this information without Jack's knowledge. So once again, you've got this, you know, Locke and Jack each sort of trying to act like they're in charge of the situation. But he asks her to talk to Henry, and his reasoning is that she has more experience with the others based on everything that they went through uh, on the other side of the island, and that also she was a police officer. The one thing I noticed, too, that was I think was very deliberate was that he refers to the hatch as my hatch. Did you catch that? I didn't. Um, one thing I did think was deliberate, though, of, of Locke was I think not only did he pick Ana Lucia for those reasons, but I think because they kept it a secret between them, We've seen that Jack has been getting on Lucia to help him put this army together. And now that Locke is the one who tells her about Henry first and Jack didn't even think to bring it up to her. I think he's trying to get some dissension between the two of them on purpose. Yeah. Driving a wedge and maybe making a bid for her loyalty. Yeah. But he goes, uh, yeah, you know, there's a stranger in my hatch and I want him out. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking, oh yeah, he's still got this possessive thing about the hatch. Kind of like what I was talking about last episode, but he, he's, he's aimless with it. He doesn't know what he's supposed to be doing. We go back to sun and just a quick scene where Rose and Bernard who are, you know, who doesn't love a Rose and Bernard appearance. They're always fun. Uh, they're arguing about, he doesn't even know what day of the week it is. So he forgot her birthday and she's like, it's Saturday. So she's been keeping track, I guess. Um, Sun is not looking so hot. She's looking kind of pale and sick and uh, Rosen Bernard trying to convince her to uh, go to talk to Jack, but she just insists that she got too much sun. So no pun intended. Um, I think pun very much intended. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so Jack is actually in the hatch. Uh, unsurprisingly, he comes out of the shower and he finds that Locke is in the bathroom with him shaving. He says, the steam opens up my pores and I guess they're out of shaving cream, but this is more of this just like sort of jockeying for territory and stuff and sort of almost like asserting dominance over one another. Like Jack's like, or Locke's like, I'm going yeah, to come in here whenever I want, even if you're taking a shower. There's this sort of thing, this underpinning to all this. And there's this, I saw this tension and animosity under the surface. You um, know what, though? I don't yeah. care how they're trying to do this. The bathroom is a sacred place. Yeah. Yeah. Let's keep let's keep one person in the bathroom at a time. So he asked Jack if they should bring in Ana Lucia to talk to Henry. And then it's like, oh, by the way, I already thought that we should. And she's in there with him now. Um. So, I mean, like Jack agrees, but it doesn't even really matter. So Anna, Anna is in there with Henry and, uh, you know, he asks or she asks him to tell her his story, but he's like, I've said this to everybody now. Why should I repeat it? And then she explains that she had a situation on the other side of the island where she was wrong about somebody. You know, if you'll recall that there was the guy named Nathan who she was like positive was the, the infiltrator in their group put him in the cage, ended up sequence of events ended up to his, with his death. 
and she does not want to repeat that mistake. So this is why she wants to hear, hear him out, essentially. Uh, meanwhile, Sun goes to Sawyer and asks for medical supplies. So just like Kate went to a gun, Sawyer is sort of the uh, went to him for a gun. Uh, Sawyer is the purveyor of all goods and supplies. And once again, he won't do this without knowing why. So he makes her reveal that she's looking for a pregnancy test. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. Back with Ana Lucia after he after Henry tells his story, we just cut in and because we've already heard the story a bunch of times. Anna asks him to draw a map to his balloon so that they can prove the story. He does not see the point because he says that the whole group is looking for somebody to blame for everything that they've been through. And so he thinks I'm dead already, no matter what I do. Like you people have already got me pegged, in other words. The best point about this though, I think, is yeah. he's like well, I don't even know where I am. Like, how am I going to trace it back? And she was like, are you telling me that you were in a hot air balloon going across the Atlantic and you can't write me a map to get back to your balloon on this island? Yeah. Like, what do you think? I am stupid. And I thought, you know, that's a really good point. <laughs> Valid point. Anna says if that he if he doesn't draw the map, yeah, that's probably exactly how it'll play out, what you just said, if you, if you don't cooperate. So that uh, seems to be enough reason for him to draw the map because in the next scene, she does have it. Son is meanwhile opening up the pregnancy test and just a quick note to viewers. Again, if you are a first time viewer, this might not mean much to you now, but take a quick note at the cover of the pregnancy test and notice that it says with more labs, just put a pin in that and uh, you'll be glad you did. So she's uh, getting ready to do this pregnancy test and Hurley comes out of the jungle. He's got a candy bar that he says he found in the jungle uh, and then she waits until he goes away and before she goes back to the kit. Hurley's barely in these two episodes. So this is kind of like the only scene of any substance that he gets in two episodes. It was wonderful. It's just sort of like an un understood. I won't tell if you won't. Yeah. And they both just kind of go on their own way. It's, yeah. It was lovely. It gave me a good chuckle. It's kind of remind. It kind of it's kind of like reminds me of the scene where like Hurley and son are waiting for Vincent to poop because he, they think that he ate, ate her wedding ring. Like just this, this weird kind of pairing of the two of them that always results in humor. Uh, or like when he looks over at uh, Sun and Jin having just uh, done some hanky-panky that morning and does like the thumbs up to Jin. I just think it's fun how he relates to them since they they sometimes seems like seem like outsiders, you know? I'm, I'm so glad you, you mentioned that because as funny as, of course, Jin and son coming in the morning after some maybe obvious love making and Hurley giving you thumbs up. It does put into, it does plant that seed way back when that Jin could be a father, you know, we know the infertility thing, but even when you learned that and then you see this Locke couldn't walk off the Island and now he's on the Island. And he can. So there's all this mysticism where you're thinking, Hey, we've right. seen that at some point they probably right. have knocked the boots here on the Island. So her being pregnant isn't uh, totally unreasonable. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, prior to that scene, there probably had not been any uh, action between them in quite a while because their marriage was falling apart. Basically, it was like they managed to make amends right before he left on the raft. And then that happens the day after he gets back. So uh, the timeline works out. And well, it also works out because I think what we're supposed to think with the timeline here when we're seeing the flashbacks and everything is that she could have had an affair with the other guy and it could be his baby. Right. Well, that's and the episode kind of strings you along with thinking like, is that exactly. the explanation? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
So going back to Ana Lucia, she comes out of the armory, tells Jack and Locke that she wants to talk to Henry again in a day to give him time to think. But that's not really what's going on. Once again, she is, you know, added to the long list of people who are either lying to each other or withholding information, particularly about Henry. Because then she proceeds straight to Saeed, who happens to be with Charlie, who happens to also know about Henry, shows them this uh, map. So Henry did draw a map for her, uh, but she decided to keep that fact to herself. And she wants Saeed and Charlie to go with her on a quest to check it out and see if they can find his hot air balloon. And then we come back from a commercial and they're following the map and they reach one of the landmarks uh, on the map. So Saeed's saying like, well, so far, well, she says so far so good that, you know, the map is holding up to where they're going. And Charlie and Anna get in this argument about who should carry the gun. And Charlie kind of does this dick thing, although maybe not completely undeserved, where Charlie is about to give the gun to Anna Lucia and then turns around and gives it to Saeed. I loved um, it. Yeah, don't blame him for acting that way towards her. I like Anna Lucia, but uh, she was also being kind of obnoxious in, in that particular scene. Look, if I'm putting my trust in one of those two people, it's Saeed. Yeah, yeah, no question. Back to Sun, Kate is waiting with her for the pregnancy test results. So Kate who is often this emotional support for Sun. We've seen this before. And it turns out that Sun is pregnant. They talk to Jack next. And Jack says, yeah, these are generally pretty a- accurate. You might have a false negative in the first week, but you know, this is probably a sure thing. Sun asks him not to tell anyone, even Jin. And Jack says that Sun should really tell him the whole truth. Uh, kind of referring back to when the whole thing about her knowing English came out, because that did not go down too well with uh, Jin being the last person in the world to find out about that. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, Saeed, Ana Lucia, and Charlie are camping overnight in the jungle. Saeed and uh, Ana Lucia talk uh, by the campfire. This is this to me is a great scene. Ana Lucia talks about how she was never liked by anybody. She tried but she couldn't see like she means like her whole life not just on the island and then eventually she sort of gave up trying and that's sort of like the story of her life then she apologizes to saeed this is like her official i guess apology for killing shannon a brutally honest moment and saeed says that uh he understands that ana lucia was just protecting her people and that it was really not her but it was them as in the others that killed Shannon. He speaks as if he's already made up his mind about Henry Gale, because he says, once we find out he's one of them, something will have to be done. So just like the a couple episodes ago, we had the Saeed episode where, uh, you know, thematically one of the things that was being addressed is that Saeed was taking out his anger on Henry Gale over what happened to Shannon. And that thread continues here with the idea of like, this is going to be this guy's going to be our revenge. So really what Henry Gale was saying earlier is kind of true it seems like or at least Definitely. for some of the survivors that they've basically already got it in for him. Yeah, 100%. The next morning it's raining. We get another good rain scene and always a positive dang, sign. Yeah, always a positive sign. And the group reaches a clearing at the end of the map. And so they've reached the end of Henry's map and they do not see a hot air balloon. So, you know, Saeed's immediate reaction is this whole thing has been bullshit. We're going to go back and deal with this guy. Ana Lucia says, you know, we need to search really thoroughly. And she makes the very 
logical point that if we are going to go back and say this guy's definitely an other, we need to be 100% certain that that's the case. So they kind of split the area up and begin looking around, and that's where we leave that crew for this episode. We wrap up Sun's storyline here. We actually go to Jin first, and he's he's fishing. Bernard comes over with a net and does not look like he knows what he's doing and tries to tell Jin that he's actually fishing for oysters, which I thought was kind of funny. I don't even know if that's like a thing. I do you not heard, know you've how. Never heard that. There's supposed to be pearls and oysters. Well, I know, I know. There's pearls and oysters, but I mean uh, that, like, you would fish for oysters in the same way that you would fish for other fish. I well, I think seafood. he was getting desperate. Yeah, maybe so. It's so. I mean, we know that he's he's in the doghouse because he forgot uh, Rose's birthday. So he, he you're, you're right. He is desperate. Uh, Sawyer approaches both of them and uh, congratulates Jin, knowing that he can't understand. <laughs> Uh, what he's saying and um, we get one of these scenes where Jin is like we hear it from his perspective that Sawyer and Bernard are talking but they actually play it backwards so that it, we can't understand it. it sounds like gibberish which is exactly how you know Jin would perceive it and real quickly I just I, I got the translation or somebody of course reversed it again so that we know it, what uh, they say so you know when Sawyer says that you know, son is pregnant. Bernard says, well, how do you know? And Sawyer says, oh, I got my source. And Bernard says, well, aren't you going to tell him that? And Sawyer says, not my place. And Bernard says, you should tell him or, and Sawyer says, hell no. Um, <laughs> let sunshine tell him. So just in case you're curious about what was actually being said in that reverse scene, but of course, Jin doesn't understand any of it, but he hears son's name. So he kind of knows that something's going on. So he goes back and fixes his mistake in the garden. He replants Sun's plants. Sun arrives and he apologizes and says that, you know, he needs her. Like he feels completely alone without her. Sort of the scene prior to this underscoring that, that, you know, he can't really interact that much with everybody else other than sort of the bare minimum. He feels alone as the only person who doesn't know English. Sun tells Jin that she's pregnant and he is super excited, but then, you know, it's kind of like, you know, how did this happen? She says, I have to tell you something. And this is what you were talking about. Uh, this is actually where the flashback cuts in, uh, where we learn about, you know, that it was Jin who's infertile and not Sun. And so your audience is thinking, well, then was it an affair? She swears to him that she's never been with another man. Uh, and then Jin says it must be a miracle. So whether explicitly stated or not, Jin is kind of believing in some island magic here. Uh, but Sun still looks kind of concerned. What I loved about this scene, too, is that when Sawyer came and congratulated him, he said, congrats, Daddy-o. Yeah. And he understood that enough that when he's talking to Sun and he hears he's pregnant, he kind of says to himself, Daddy-o. Oh, yeah. And he kind of laughs right. a little bit to himself like, ah, okay, now that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And they, they have this conversation too where like she's talking about who who, who already knows and you know, it's kind of like, well, maybe maybe there's somebody who still doesn't know that we can right, officially like, announce well, it well, Jack and Kate know and Sawyer knows, which means Bernard probably everybody knows. knows. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they just kind of like shrug their shoulders like, eh, what can you do? So uh, Sun asks uh, if she can have a, you know another 20 minutes to be by herself uh, in the garden. Jin, you know, doesn't uh, obviously the look on his face. He doesn't love this idea going back to the whole thing of she's 
by herself where she was attacked previously, but you know, he agrees this time. He kind of realizes that he was being a dick earlier. Uh, and then says, I love you in English. And there's a lot of, there's just a lot of angstiness in this scene. So like, I leave the scene feeling like we don't have quote unquote, the whole truth yet as we do, uh, as, as the episode title suggests, there's just a, there's just a few too many lingering shots on Sun and Jin with, uh, unresolved looks on their faces. You know what I mean? Sure. Last scene, one of the all time favorite scenes in lost. So Jack uh, lets Henry out to have some cereal. Henry jokes that this is he's getting out on good behavior. And while and he sits down in like the little table area with Locke, they're also having cereal. So this is sort of something that Jack and Locke are doing together. Well, actually, I guess Locke, it sounds like Locke didn't know about it at first, but he doesn't he doesn't put up a fight about this idea of letting Henry out just to have some cereal. They're having this conversation and Henry lets it slip that he drew a map for Anna Lucia Jack's like, did you know about this lock? And he's like, no, I didn't know about it. And so Henry's just kind of nibbling on some cereal and he says, Of course, if I was one of them, these people that you seem to think are your enemies, what would I do? Hmm. There'd be no balloon. So I'd draw a map to a real secluded place like a cave or some underbrush. Good place for a trap. An ambush. And when your friends got there, a bunch of my people would be waiting for them. And then they'd use them to trade for me. I guess it's a good thing I'm not one of them, huh? You guys got any milk? I, I think that scene is so good, Kevin, that I don't think any way that I could have recapped it would have done it justice because Michael Emerson, the actor that plays Henry Gale, is so perfectly good in that scene. It's an all-timer. It's an all-time great lost <laughs> really scene. And there's this, one, there's this one scene where Locke, or this one cut where Locke looks up and makes eye contact with Jack that I love. It's like this, oh shit moment. Um, I, do, I do wonder, how could Ana Lucia have left there with map in hand and, and gotten past Locke and Jack without them knowing? You know what I mean? Well, she came back and she came out with the map, but she, I mean, she obviously, I think she had like a vest on or something. She just tucked it into a pocket or something. Hmm. But I, I mean, I guess, uh, I well, well, what did she tell them when when she because she comes in the room with the computer to tell them something after she's done talking right. to right she comes that's the scene i recapped earlier where she goes she says oh you know i talked to him i think they said something like well you know do you believe him whatever and she's like well i want to talk to him again tomorrow and oh, I see. Like, okay. Bye. she's like well i want to give him time to think you let him stew a little bit. I, I don't remember exactly how she put it, but her her excuse is that she's like this is like a strategy that she's employing by like leaving and then coming back to talk to him again the next day. And and Jack seems to buy it at that point. But what really happened is that she's got the map and she's going to go check it out. So why do you think she didn't tell Locke and Jack why she did that? Well, that actually has to do with my uh, my quote of the episode. So okay. we can come back to that in just a moment. Um, do you have anything you want to add? Just general notes or observations that we didn't get to with the recap? 
I think this is a really easy episode to watch. It felt very, especially compared to just the denseness with flipping back and forth with all the memories and stuff. This yeah. felt like a very easy, lighter watch in general. I thought it was a good episode. Not as good as the one that came before it, but again, when right. you're not in the same company as the top five, that's still pretty darn good. Yeah. But again, it ends with one of the best scenes in Lost history. Yeah. Well, and I fall back on what I've said uh, at least a couple times before, which is that Sun and Jin are, they are very much the heart of Lost and their their, their relationship struggles, the ongoing revelations about the things in their past are really uh, engaging to me. I, I don't know. Other people might disagree, but like I find learning things about their relationship prior to the island to be more compelling than the things that we're learning about Jack or Kate uh, with things like the stupid wedding episode. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's really like they make better flashbacks. There are people who, when there's a flashback that comes up, I don't necessarily get excited for it, but I know I'm not going to be disappointed. I know I'm not, it's yeah. not going to feel dull. It's yeah. something that I, I don't get sick of them, if nothing else. Yeah. I mean, like with the wedding episode, uh, I'm like, I want that 20 minutes of my life back however long, yeah. whatever, whatever amount of time the flashback took up of that episode, you know, or Kate with the stupid toy airplane, whatever this, it's always like, it's worthwhile because you do feel like each time, each time you see a flashback, that's a Sun or Jin flashback, you actually are getting to know a little bit more about the characters than you did before. And I also think that, you know, to some extent, the lines are getting a little bit murkier in terms of who, contributed to the problems that they're having because and it's deliberate because at the beginning of the series it's it's framed as Jin is this asshole you know terrible husband and son is the victim but now we're starting to learn things the other way around of course we've known for a while that she learned English uh, without telling him but also now that she had this secret that she never revealed to him which was that he was the one who was infertile and you know, she has her justifications for doing it, but there's definitely, you know, there's things going on both ways with this marriage. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. All right. So uh, let's do some, some superlatives here. What was your quote of, or what was your moment of the episode? Well, how could you not say that final moment with Henry Gale explaining what he would do if he was one of the others? But of course he's not. So Jack and Locke <laughs> have no need to worry. Uh, except they're obviously going to go panic. And what I really liked about this scene, not only was Michael Emerson's delivery just amazing, just textbook A-plus acting from him, yeah. but it almost seems like in that moment, not only do Locke and, and Jack realize that they're screwed or potentially screwed, they realize that all this other crap between them is really trivial. And it, maybe we need to start paying attention to the bigger picture. Yeah. At least that's what I what I hope kind of comes from them. I'm sure it's not the end of Locke and Jack bickering with each other, but it serves as a reminder of of what the stakes are, and that this 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 stuff between them needs to get dropped yeah. sooner or later. No, that's a good. Uh, that's a really good observation that I think is apparent in in the way that they react to this, and just sort of even like these three actors. Matthew Fox, Terry O'Quinn, Michael Emerson in the scene and like the, the eye contact that Locke and Jack make as Henry Gale is like putting out this idea of, oh, if I was another, here's what I'd do. Those just those subtle facial cues between the two of them communicate a lot. It's really the subtlety of all that is really excellent. That's what makes for great scenes, I think. Yeah, for sure. 
So I, I kind of figured that you'd either pick that or sometimes I just feel that if there's a scene that's so blatantly, obviously an amazing scene that's like maybe even top 10 for the entire series that I like to go for something else just to have add a little more to it. I picked the scene uh, where Anna, Anna Lucia tells Saeed that she's sorry and talks a little bit about you know her, her life prior and everything. And I, I just felt like that is one of those scenes where, again if they had completely eliminated the episode collision and her flashback there, that I think people would be so much more sympathetic with Anna Lucia. I and agree. I, you know, I'm, I'm somebody and I know many other people who have struggled with self-esteem issues and, you know, felt at times that I was trying really hard to get people to like me and not succeeding. I'm thinking back to like high school and to some extent college maybe that when she talks about that, I, I, I sympathize with that. That's this idea that I just feel like I've never quite fit in or some, some way that I was, you know, always seemed to turn people away from me. And eventually I just sort of gave up. So like, to me, I totally sympathize with that situation. And, and the fact that she's opening herself up to Saeed of all people, I just feel like brings that relationship back around. It's just really cool. So that's what I put down for my moment. I actually had the second scene here. I just want to give a, a shout out to the Hurley yeah. and Son interaction because that's oh, totally. a bundle of fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. What's your quote? <laughs> also went for humor with this one. It's when Son approaches Sawyer to go get the pregnancy test and he's reading a book. And I know you'll talk about this book, but he's reading, <laughs> Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. And Son asks, How's your book? And he says, Predictable. Then there's a few moments of silence. And then he says, Not enough sex. <laughs> Sawyer, I think Sawyer as an avid reader is just a really cool idea. Like I know that's in some in some sense that's just how he's passing the time, but I like how it sort of betrays predictability. You know, it betrays the cliche about the sort of rednecky guy, like the fact that he's reading all these books. I just think that's kind of cool. My quote of the episode was: "It goes back to when you asked why you why I thought that Anna Lucia did not tell Jack about." the map because Saeed asks, I think he asks almost this same question or like, he says something like, what did Jack and Locke think about this? And she says, Jack and Locke are a little too busy worrying about Locke and Jack. <laughs> yep. For sure. And I thought that was brilliant because it is like these two have got their heads buried and, and it so comes back to what you were saying about too, this, this ending moment of the episode where uh, all of that stupid, uh, you know, prick waving contest superiority battle whatever between the two of them uh it just seems to seem so it, it seems so insignificant in the uh, in the face of this idea that uh some people some of their own people might be in danger um yeah i love that quote from anna lucia did you find any numbers kevin zero numbers in this episode zero numbers okay do you have an asshole idiot i gave it to somebody who i thought i would never give it to uh-oh Sun and Jin have both have their moments of asshole idiocy, especially Jin in the opening moment with the garden. Yeah. But he, I think he makes good by the end of it. He puts yeah. it together. He realizes he was wrong. And I think if we're going to give this asshole idiot award, I do think it's also important that we do understand and, and recognize it when people realize their faults and, and are for, and do apologize for it. So yeah. not going to give it to, to, to Jin here. And there's lots of things you can say about what Locke and Jack did or what Sun did or other people did, but I feel like they at least had all their reasons. So 
with very limited choices here and not wanting to not give it to anybody, I gave it to Rose. Because okay. we we had this whole episode where Sun loses her wedding ring and she's looking for it. And I understand again, I my my whole thing with that was why well, I understand the abhorrence and the significance of the symbolism of it all. I think her husband or anybody should be forgiving that we're on this deserted island. You losing your wedding ring isn't the worst thing in the world. I also think the same thing about trivial matters such as birthdays here, but it's just so right. important to Rose that she's, uh, that she's going to be a jerk to, to <laughs> him the whole time, especially when they've only been together for what a dozen days at this point, maybe less. Right. Like, come on, Rose, yeah. what are you doing here? Well, I think to some extent that Bernard might've been, by the time we get to the scene where Bernard is looking for oysters because he wants to find a pearl for Rose, which I think is about the most hilarious thing I've ever heard from him, that he might be inflating the importance of, you know, it's, have you ever had a situation, whether it's a relationship or a friendship or whatever, where, you know, somebody's upset with you, but they're not so upset with you that they're letting it like sort of fester but it festers with you. So you're trying to make things right. And by the time you come back around, they're like, you know, I'm over that already. You didn't really need to make things right. Right. I feel like that's Bernard in this scene, but I get what you're saying about like this sort of presumption that he would remember the birthday. Like, sorry, Rose, not everybody is counting the weekdays. Like you are at this point. We are, we are at day 60. This is like the two month mark. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, we're, we are beyond calendars and birthdays and all this other nonsense. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I get it. I also look for kind of, you know, something a little less obvious. You know, I didn't want to go for gin. I just, uh, I used, that coined the term jock a couple episodes ago, uh, as in whenever Jack and Locke are just petty with each other at the expense of bigger issues. So this time I went for Sawyer. Basically, just because uh, this is two episodes in a row where he is already on the shit list for the whole guns thing and is insisting on sticking his nose in everybody else's business. You know, so I, I already feel like he's kind of on the outs with the whole stunt with the guns. And then on top of that, he feels like he can be this sort of information broker or something. I don't know. So given two episodes in a row of him kind of being a. Uh, a jerk about that i gave him my asshole idiot award did you catch any sawyer nicknames we already talked about daddy-o right so all i had was sunshine and daddy-o sunshine for for son and daddy-o for jen yeah. i think those are both pretty self-explanatory i think he calls jen something else pa he calls him papa I yeah say. yeah so, maybe but again that's sort of in the same yeah, line as daddy same same thing but nothing yeah. not no cultural reference important things like right yeah None, none, he doesn't doesn't uh, tap into that vast pop cultural knowledge. That you know what? Has. That enough is a reason to give him the asshole idiot with his lazy nicknames. In this That's episode. right. Yeah, those are pretty lazy nicknames. I mean, Daddy-O, you can barely call that a nickname. Yeah, Sunshine, that's already part of her name. Right. Okay, so music. We've got a, a, a couple good uh, selections here. So we have two tracks on the soundtrack this time. Uh, one is called Map Quest. It's actually a really short track. It's not even 40 seconds long. It's a suspense track, and it's a very common motif that's used when they're either talking about mysteries or revealing mysteries. This is uh, used when they're on the quest to follow Henry's map. Um, but it's a real solid track, I think, just because it's when you hear it, it's one of those ones that you immediately 
you know, register as being like a core loss theme that you hear a bunch uh, and you sort of place it as, oh yeah, this is that, you know, mysterious sounding song that they always play when something really, really suspenseful is about to happen or some big mystery is about to be revealed. So I, I like that one. And then the next one is called The Last to Know, uh, which is uh, the scene at the end when Sun and Jin are talking in the garden and joking about how everybody already knows about the pregnancy. Uh, it's sort of just a re uh, it's a reorchestration of uh, the Sun Jin main theme. So nothing too outstanding about that one other than it's just a nice clear uh, rendition of that theme. And then we have one incidental song. This is uh, another one from the good old Hatch record library. This is Pushing Too Hard by the Seeds. So Locke is listening to this uh, in one uh, particular scene. The Seeds I had never heard of before. Not that I'm a huge expert on early 60s rock bands, but uh, they, are, they were, I guess, the equivalent of a garage band, which we kind of associate with the 90s and like Nirvana and that sort of thing, but the sort of 1960s equivalent of that. And they are listed in this, this song actually pushing too hard is listed in the rock and roll hall of fame's uh, list of 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. So take that for what you will. I don't know the details about why they would include that. And then we have one book. This is Sawyer's book already mentioned. Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom, who was a really well-known young adult literature uh, writer. The book is kind of, I guess, famous slash infamous. It's, it is one of the more frequently banned books from school libraries, it, or either that or like attempts to ban it through like, you know, PTAs and stuff like that, basically because it just deals very frankly with topics that were considered sort of taboo uh, in in talking to young people about uh, at the time that it was published. So it's written from the perspective of a sixth grade girl. And as the title uh, kind of alludes to, she is trying to figure out some of her religious beliefs uh, because she comes from a family where the parents are both from different religions. But the real stuff that was controversial uh, in, in terms of parents disapproving of the book was that it deals with subjects, uh, just basically adolescent issues for girls. Like she writes about something like trying on her first bra or having her first period, uh, first being attracted to boys and all of this stuff that was, I guess, very hush hush or not to be spoken of openly in books that were written for young people so you know kind of an a, uh an old-fashioned way of looking at it uh and so as a result it has been challenged many times in public school libraries um as somebody who comes from an english and an education background myself i have not read the book but i i know a lot about censorship and about attempts to ban books in in uh, school libraries and this one gets name checked a lot on that list so yeah, Judy Bloom's Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Pretty culturally significant book, given all of that uh, that history that it has to it. And that's all I've got, Kevin. Well, there you go. I think two pretty good episodes lost here. Yeah, two very good episodes. So how about some plugs before we get out of here? I co-write a comic and draw it with uh, my writing partner, Marjorie. And uh, it is called Neopolitine. And we invite you to check that out. We have uh, social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can download the comic at neopolitine.com. That's N-E-O-P-O-L-A-T-I-N-E. 
You could follow the show on Twitter at Lost Pod. A new episode publishes every single Monday, and all of the archives are available at EnterTheRealWorld.com. That is R E E L, like a film reel. Follow Enter the Real World for all the other fun stuff. There are Marvel MCU lookbacks and all this other fun stuff that's on there. You can also contact the show on Twitter, of course. You can also send an email to lostpodquestions at gmail.com and shout out to a lot of other people who have already been tweeting us some of their thoughts on the episodes or some of the stuff we may have missed we really appreciate it keep them coming and you can follow me on twitter at kford13 i think otherwise that's going to do it for this week's episode so we'll see you next week with a brand new episode of broadcast see you then you're pushing too hard or pushing on me